Welcome to Pablo Held Investigates, where I talk to my musical heroes and peers about their creative process and their music. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash pabloheld. And to keep informed about the interviews, my music and everything else that I'm up to, subscribe to my newsletter at pabloheld.com. Okay, let's start investigating. haven't met until today and uh, I had a feeling right from the start that kind of uh, it felt great to play with you felt great to talk with you to play with you to hang with you and I'm wondering how you how you go about these situations when you meet new people and when you meet a drummer like like Fabian what's your first what what happens uh, for you to be able to click with somebody that quickly um, I think we have to have some kind of a shared experience. I think we we listen to the same kind of music. We have studied similar albums. I think, and I, but for me, playing with a with a new drummer is always a little like ah, I'm always a little nervous because I play with some good drummers over over the years, and I'm just I'm kind of spoiled when it comes to that. I'm I kind of expect like really the best. I expect someone who can play. You know, good language and and have good taste and tune the drums appropriately so that there's not a conflict with the bass sound or with the piano sound and someone who has chosen good symbols. It's all all these little things. There's so many different. It's always, I'm always a little bit nervous and and today I was just I was totally having a ball. I mean, Fabian just, just rocks. Sounds so great. Really swings and very tasteful and uh, I felt you know. At its best, this this is like this is what it sounds like to me, you know, like on a first meeting, just just being able to get together and just find some common ground and find you know find the find the quarter note together and and some stuff in between and and just and be able to also feel that we can help each other sort of explore and get outside of of the normative you know the normal format of like you play the melody, then we play the solos, then. We trade fours or whatever. There's just being able to find some other stuff because I'm really interested now in exploring some of those kind of things because I've spent a lot of time in, in more straight-ahead contexts. Um, I, I think my discography or whatever would back me up on that. But um, I mean, I, I see like I see myself as I can be, I can play like fairly predictively. I can, I can, and actually going into a situation like today. When I first uh, was was playing with you guys, I was like, I'm gonna play really simple, and you gave me a, a nice cue, like let's do it like boom, bam, boom, or whatever the rhythm was. Yeah. So let's just do it like this, boom. But he gave me a little, just a little nudge, just to say like let's keep it real simple, and, and and I mean that's the way I took it, and because that, if I approach the situation from that point. I'm not. I'm not there to challenge you guys and be like, "Hey, man, I'm from New York, man. What do you guys got?" I, I mean, there are people that are like that in the world for sure, but but no, I'm there to. I'm there to sort of see what we can collaborate on, and, and so if I go in simple, and it's always a good reminder to you know to start with less and to start with listening with my ears. Also, I sent no sheet music, and I just said, True. you know, let's play these songs. Yeah. And some of them, uh, you told me you, you, you looked up and you kind of uh, found a version or I sent a version. What happens if you learn a tune? I mean, what's important for you to, to get the sense of a tune and to, to, to learn it and internalize it? 
Well, it depends on the song. I mean, we we played some Strayhorn and um, some songs that I have, you know, like Passion Flower. I played a few times, but it's been many, many years since I played that. So I had to look. I mean, I looked up everything. He when he sent me a list, a tentative list. I was kind of like, yeah, these are all great. And this is new. I knew a much different version of that song, which is sort of a burning you know, 4-4 four, four swing minor modal version, which I've been playing a lot, and I, and I love it like that, but he suggested we try it, you know, with the original, closer to the original, at least um, in terms of the harmony, although our feel was a little more jazz, I would say, than, than the original <laughs> recording. But, yeah, I mean, I like to do the homework. I like to have, and I like it when people send me, like, aud- audible auditory things experiences so that i can listen because i'm definitely a better listener than than a reader in fact what i did is i created little parts for myself i just wrote out you know sometimes not even the chord quality but the just the root notes and maybe i'd write like if there's a rhythmic figure i might put a little scratch that nobody but me would be able to understand what it means but just to yeah just to have um and it was, it was actually you know a lot of times you come into a situation situation like this and we just play songs that we all know and that's cool too in fact that's what i thought i was going to be doing but sorry (laughs) but um no but it was fine it was because the songs are songs that i'm interested in and and i like and if i if i was like man i don't want to play that then i think you would have been like fine we'll get john goldsby next time um okay uh i want to i want to get into a topic of um uh a very special drummer that I have, have uh, the pleasure had the pleasure of, of uh, hearing you with on records, but also in a couple of concerts, and that is Al Foster. And you've had a very very um, long relationship with him. Um, and I'm wondering, with this kind of guy, uh, this kind of master at the drums, uh, how was it for you to? kind of get a sense for with him what you what your role is and what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. what he's expecting of you but also I've when I saw you guys play I had a feeling that you also looked out for him you were there for him and uh, kind of taking care of of him musically also mm. um, I, I, yeah maybe you can descri- describe that relationship a little bit <laughs> I'll try. That could, we might be here a while. <laughs> um, well, yeah, he's he, Al Foster. Is for those of you who don't know, is a, a drummer who was born in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, grew up in Harlem, New York. And um, he's completely self-taught. He actually, <clears throat> I don't know if you know this, but he auditioned for the high school of performing arts in New York City and was not given a place so he went to catholic school and he set up the drums after school and he would play the drums like from from about the time he was 14 i won't give you his entire history but just so you don't just so you know so he he ended up going on to play with uh miles davis sonny rollins herbie hancock bobby hutcherson joe henderson joe henderson yeah let's not forget uh you know and the list goes on cannonball adderley was one of his first big gigs and and uh yeah, so he's he did okay for for a guy who was nobody really expected much of, and um, when I met him, I was I saw him actually with Miles when I was sixteen. I, I went to see him, and I was 
really gassed by that band because Miles Davis had been on hiatus for some years and I was just getting into the music. I had Charlie Parker with Miles and I had Charlie Parker with Dizzy and I always kind of preferred Miles some, for some reason. I just liked the lyricism and I, I connected to the vulnerability, I think. And um, yeah, I never thought that I would be friends with Al or play with him actually and it just just sort of happened after i was in at school in new york i was knocking around town and doing gigs and i ended up on a record date with chris potter and sandiata yeah and kevin hayes on piano and uh you know i was like well al foster's gonna play drums wow that's cool you know and and i had you know i knew his sound i knew kind of his approach and i was just hopeful that it would be okay and so I went to the rehearsal, and he didn't show up to the rehearsal. So I was like, okay, is he going to... And the, the question was, is he then going to show up to the record date? And of course, you know, that's, that's where the money is, so you don't get paid for rehearsals <laughs> in New York. So <clears throat> anyway, he showed up, and, um, and how I hooked it felt... It was similar, though. It was, it was just a feeling of comfort. He made me feel good. He made me feel like I could play, and he... And, even though I was nervous, and I didn't say, I barely spoke to him that first se- session, but I remember playing, uh, <laughs> I, forget, I think maybe Body and Soul we were playing, and I was playing a solo. I was like, do, 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 dee, dee. And, and I, I just happened to glance over, and I saw him looking under his ride symbol, or his crash symbol. He was kind of looking at me and smiling and, like, checking me out. And I was like, woo! I think he likes me. <laughs> and it turned out, yeah, it, it turned out that he liked me and he, he asked me to, to do some, you know, to work for him. And, and, uh, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it turned into a you know, 20 plus year relationship, friendship. And yeah. What else can I say? I mean, I can go on and on. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. Because I'm, I'm interested. Did he also give you some, Advice, or did he say oh, yes, like good, yeah. what what he was uh, expecting from you? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was very clear that I was like his his student. I was like, because the first the first touring band was Chris Potter on saxophone and Dave Kakoski on on piano, and little old me, and and the bassist before me was Larry Grenadier. So the the bar was set quite high for the you know what what Al expected, and he'd also played with George Mraz with Joe Henderson and Dave Holland and Charlie Hayden, and he was always going on and on about how great Charlie Hayden was and how great George was. In fact, on the first first tour, we flew to Germany. Our first gig was in Germany, and uh, and on the way there, he just kind of told me every bass player that he'd played with and which ones that he liked, and most of them that he didn't, and why. Also, why he didn't like them. Can you go into detail? I can't maybe? go into detail on that. But, but what he wouldn't like is he wouldn't like a bass player who played who was too loud. He really likes the bass. He sits quite low, and he likes to ha- have the bass acoustically right. At least that's what we gravitated towards. So I'm, he's hearing my sound acoustically from the instrument. And, his, and it's really right next to his ear. And it's just, I feel like I'm feeding him this, this, uh, this pulse And then that allows him to, because he, if you've seen him play, he keeps time with his right hand. Oftentimes, he's got his 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 beautiful beat going. But then he's he's doing this sort of rubato conversation with whatever else is happening, or dropping little things in there. And you're like, you know, it's almost like, man, how how do you do that? It's you can't count it, you can't write it down, really. 
at least that, I mean, maybe I'm sure there's people that are doing it or hopefully, but, um, wait, what was the question? Uh, oh yeah. Uh, no. The question was, you know, what what kind of advice he gave you? Oh yeah, what advice, he was right. <laughs> right. So from yeah, the you. advice was like, don't play too loud. And he he was very very particular, also with with pianists and with saxophonists. Like what what would you say there? He would say, too loud, too loud, or 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 like or he'd say. Actually, one of the great moments I think was after Kevin Hayes left the band, we auditioned probably four or five different pianists. So what does an audition look like? It looks like you you just happen to be there and Al has a gig and he tries you out on the gig and you you go and you get all the music and you and if you show up and you play the play the crap out of his music and stay out of his way it long enough for him to get comfortable then then you're cool. Well, it took like up until like the fifth person for that to happen and that so that's, was That's five gigs? No, it's like five different piano players like yeah and at different times, you know. And uh so this this guy Adam Birnbaum showed up uh, on on his first gig. Our first gig of a tour was in Hamburg at the jazz club there at Bird, Bird Birdland. Birdland, yeah, Birdland Jazz Club. And um, first of all, he learned all of Al's songs. Al writes songs at the piano by himself without any theory books or any you know formal training. He just he just sits there and dukes it out with a piano until something is happening and then he'll say I think I got something and we'll we'll sit around the piano and learn it from him right like that so it's a very old school way of learning because he doesn't read music he doesn't he doesn't write it down ever so Adam learned everything that we that we did he learned the repertoire and we got to the first gig and he he played the first set I thought great I was like so excited I was like man Al this guy's a shit he's, he's like playing and playing your tunes really well he's not too playing too long he's tasteful and I was like ah, nah, nah, nah. so so I said well tell him tell him what you want and he said he said hey I want you not to play all the time I want you to leave it open for because I love the sound of saxophone trio because he'd been playing with Joe Henderson so much and he really was in love with our saxophone player Ellie DeGibri And he really loved to just mix it up because if Ellie goes do Leo Leo, then he can go on the drums, and you know they have this little, like I was saying, the interior conversation. While I'm, I'm just kind of like doing this thing and helping it, helping the momentum go. And uh, so the second set, we, we, I'll never forget this. This is a great lesson for anybody. When you ask, and someone is kind enough to actually give you an instruction, like follow it. Do it. Don't just do it for like, because so many people would do it for like two bars. Two bars, yeah, right. And think like, wow, I'm laying out so much. I'm really being very selfless right now. Boom. <laughs> so, so Adam, what Adam, we played Take the Coltrane, and he played the melody along with the saxophone. And then the saxophone solo starts, and we start in two, and we're kind of like, we like to goof around in two for a while before we build into this momentum, and finally we're getting to 4-4, four, four, and, and it's shoulder to the wheel. I was kind of like really digging in, <laughs> and he's playing all this stuff around the drums. <laughs> and he looks up, and he's like, he's like, like what the, what's a piano player? <laughs> you know? And Adam's just sitting there like, like looking at him. He's looking at him, but he's not playing a note, not one note. And finally I was like, you can play. And he's like, Mm. Then he like unleashes, you know, so his hip is stuff. So that was it. That's all it took. He just he just listened. He just followed the instructions. And I mean, I did that with him too. Like Larry told me, he said, "Look, Al's tunes are easy. 
But if you really want to have fun, just learn them. Just memorize them before, you know, just learn it before the rehearsal. You know, go and, re and we did rehearse at his house. Um, and yeah, he said, just, you know, just if you go prepared. And I was, I was also totally into getting that gig because I had no other gigs. I had no, and this is like, man, this is the top drummer. This, I don't know if you guys don't know, but Al Foster was when I moved, first moved to New York, he was playing every week somewhere, Freddie Hubbard or Tommy Flanagan, or, and then in the studio with Miles or, or Sonny or, or going on tour. I mean, he was making top dollar and, and playing. He had all the best gigs. Everybody wanted him. And he would wear, like, leather pants with, like, rhinestones on the side. He was very, you know, dressed hip all the time and, and just really playing great, so great. And, and, uh, I was always wondering about that because... Actually, if, honestly, for me, it took a little time to get into Al, Al Foster's playing. Actually, I was I was young, you know, uh -huh. and I uh, I had maybe different. I, well, um, That's Al. <laughs> and we're filming it, so <laughs> right. super uh, uh, not so wise from me. But um, now, what I was going to say because. I love Al Foster, and it took yeah. me like uh, a couple of years into to get into him uh, on that level where I'm into him now, you know. Right, right. Uh, but what really made you know made me think about because it wasn't that I didn't like him it was was just that other drummers were more closer to my heart, you know. But uh, such, such as such as Tony Williams, Jack Dijonet, you right, know, right. these kinds of players. Um, I, I gravitated more natural towards to but um i was going to say that um once i thought about why is everybody playing with him you know i respected him i liked him but i, I thought about okay everybody plays with him yeah and then he's either a nice guy or he it, he he apart from being an incredible musician he makes you feel good yeah and that was my key into it and then settling Uh, into that feeling and or that perspective, let me listen to and, and concentrate on how he makes everybody else feel, although I can't feel what, what they are feeling, but I right. can listen to what his his choices, musical choices have, uh, what kind of effect they have on the on his surrounding, and everybody sounds incredible with him. Right, he's he's like a like what they call a he's he plays for the for the big games and the big stage he's just really he's unflappable i mean he's because i think if you share the stage with miles davis i think i mean and if it, maybe you would think this if you you know if you think about someone like john schofield but anyone who's been around miles has been tested by their you're you're up against one of the top artists of our time or of all time and uh so to deliver you know to 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 be in the band and to keep the gig, you know, because because anybody, you could have anybody he wanted, right? And and actually, Al was one of the, I think, maybe the only drummer that was with him in the 70s and then came back in the 80s and got hired back. I think he was the guy who played with him the longest. Possibly, yeah. Quite possibly. But, um... Yeah. Let me describe another moment. Uh, what One of my favorite memories of seeing you play with Al Foster, and I think that was at uh, the Altes Fanthaus uh, club here in Cologne. Mm -hmm. And uh, you were playing, I think I saw you there two times. Um, but there was a moment of, you know, high energy, up-tempo tunes that w were played. And then there was a moment for a ballad. 
and he said, let's play a ballad. And he looked at you uh-huh. and you you were supposed to start out a tune and it was obvious that he didn't know what you were going to play. Huh. And you started out playing a little intro and then going right into the melody of Everything Happens to Me. Oh, wow. And that was just such a beautiful moment because right when you played the first notes of the melody, his, you know, he was listening and then he was like, wow. And then he was like even singing along for a couple of bars. Yeah. And he was like, you know, holding his heart like, oh, thanks for playing this tune, you know. And that was such a beautiful moment for me to, to, to witness. And, uh, you know, were these moments that happened often where he was like, okay, just run a tune or, or you decide what's going on going on and there was yeah i mean it, i sort of grew into that role with him i i he started calling me straw boss and i would call him chief you know he used to call miles a chief and i said well you're the chief now and uh we, you couldn't call him chief in front of someone like like ron carter though ron would be like what <laughs> he's not the chief that's not the that's not your chief man um but uh it i remember actually we were playing a concert in, in somewhere, might have also been in Germany, and Aaron Goldberg was playing piano, and it was a live television thing, and, and we had been relying on Al to come up with set lists or to just call tunes. You know, it was one of those old-fashioned kind of like, what do you want to play now, Chief? And he'd say, let's play uh, ESP, and we just start. Um, but then at a certain point, like on this, this, all of a sudden the cameras are on, and that, as you know, if you're a musician or in the performing arts, when the when you're making a TV show or some kind of thing like that, the stakes kind of go up a little bit, and your your pulse is slightly elevated. There's a little bit more stress involved, and we didn't have a set list, so but he just looked at me with like like what do we do? And I was like, we play TSM, and he's like, great, count it off. And so from that point on, he was like, you know. You got it, you know, because I and and it's it was, it's a great. I mean, it's something I I didn't uh, I didn't ask for, and I didn't mm, try to push my way in or you know whatever to 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 his to be like the leader of his band, and I wasn't definitely not the leader of his band. Uh, but but that responsibility was given to me, and that was of, that was of high honor, and remains so. Does this have an effect on how you how you approached other bands after that? Yeah, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, I no. It makes me think that I could I could lead a band of my own. I I think that I've I've done. This is what people mean when they talk about you know apprenticing with a master. I mean, you know, Miles Davis went and apprenticed with with Bird, and and uh, John Coltrane was was apprenticing with Miles Davis, and with and then went back and went back with Monk again because he wanted to really get the most out of that experience. So I, yeah, it's it sort of helped me, uh, you know, feel confident that I know how to put a set together, first of all. You, you think about the keys and the different, you know, maybe think about the room, think about who's in the audience a little bit. I mean, that's also part of it. And actually one gig, in, not so far from here, we played in Leverkusen, and it was the first time we ever... We played a, a big festival appearance. It was on that first tour. And, man, we played our butts off, and Al wasn't happy with the way he played. He was kind of grouchy and like, oh, I didn't play good. So we had we walked all the way through the crowd and back upstairs to this dressing room, like through like 2,000 people, and they're, they're screaming, like, we want more. 
And I was like, man, what are you going to do? We got to play something else. You know, what do you want to play? And, and he's like, I don't know. What do you want to play? And I said, let's play Blue Bassa. And he said, all right, fine. So we went out there. We played Blue Bassa. And we played like, ba, 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 da, ba. And the place was like, Rah! Blue Bassa is a song that we know. I think that's something in, in jazz music. A lot of times you go to a concert and you have no idea what the songs are or you've never heard them before. Not everybody knows Blue Bassa, right? I mean, so I, you know, I, I, he trusted me further with like, you know, like I make a few calls like that and, and everyone is into it then. And, you know, I've definitely made some mistakes too. I mean, I've done some, you know, gotten ahead of myself and in, in certain aspects and, and, uh, cause tension from time to time but that's also learning for me it's a learning experience for me to just to see how a person wants to be handled uh in in terms of i mean one of the things i thought would be great would be to make him a website so i just did it and put it up and then i sent i sent his his wife a link and said hey guess what i did for you guys and she's like what she was she wasn't happy because she was going to pay somebody and she had plans to do it and I didn't ask and you know there's a lot of so there's you know you got to be careful how much you help someone sometimes right. you can you can go a little too far. I made a little website for you today. You did. Oh, no. that's sweet. Did you use this side or that? Side? <laughs> Um, okay, uh, you already talked about Kevin Hayes a little bit, and he's one of my favorite piano players, um, you know, of, oh, yeah, of that generation and in, in general as well. And uh, you've uh, had um, moments with Kevin Hayes in various, uh, you know, settings, musical settings. Yeah. But right now, I would like to, for you to, because you've witnessed him with Al Foster mm -hmm. for quite some years, and then also you've played in Kevin's trio with Bill Stewart. Right. Well, One, just an incredible trio but I'm sure and it sounds to me that way that um, Kevin gets into different aspects of himself when he's with Al and then when he's with Bill and you So, and you're right in the middle of that and I want to uh, see what your perspective of that is yeah that's definitely true I mean Kevin as a first of all I've known Kevin since 1980 88 or something since we were both I was still in college I think when I met him and uh, we we started playing together a little bit then and, and even in the early 90s when I was first living in New York after graduating college uh, Kevin was already on the road he was going on the road with Benny Golson or I was yeah, I'm going out with Benny Golson and Buster Williams t for two weeks or whatever he was really already heavily in demand and he never finished music school He just had this thing. He has great ears. He can hear anything, any wrong note that I play. He can make it sound like, like, like it's the best thing ever. And, and in fact, that that became partly one of our things with with standards was really like. We we'd start a tune and try and just really see if we could take it apart and and especially on you know on a, on a longer tour when we're playing the same you know ten or twelve songs every night. You know, some songs would remain pr fairly static, like Try and Times is kind of a blues. We'd kind of do it the same way every night. And then, and I learned a lot of that, actually, a lot about that from Bill, too, because Bill is such a master of, of architecture. And he seems to have a really good sense of when it needs to kind of stretch and go out or when it needs to just really just be like, just, just right here, you know. And, and, and he's also, he thinks about that in the terms of, a, of, 
of a night of music. You know, he doesn't want it all to be the same tone. Uh, he doesn't want everything to sound like 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 deeply intellectual or or too poppy or funky. He likes it. You know, Bill likes variety. I think like like most people. And so so he and I kind of together we would get together on that, and we wouldn't really talk about it much. It just sort of would happen. And then when Kevin was playing, so when we're playing with Kevin, we're de- definitely serving his his needs. He was writing the tunes, making arrangements. Um, about the only thing I ever did was was get us a record date. Um, one time, I I convinced him to do a record of standards because I thought it would be great for us to document some of that. For heaven's sake. For heaven's sake, yes. And he's, he's like, one of okay. my favorite records. He's like, okay, so you play the melody on For Heaven's Sake, then. And I was like, okay, all right. And I I, I have to credit. Uh, you know, one of my early teachers with with just getting me into playing the melodies on the bass, and that's Todd Coleman. Uh, when I was, you know, when I was studying with him at William Patterson College, he said, yeah, you know, you play, you play okay, but if you just play more lyrically, I think that would really be cool. It'd be really nice if you'd do that. And I said, well, how do you do it? I said, well, I don't know. Maybe learn the melody on the bass. Why don't you learn how you want to play it? And then I we made a thing of that, like, Sing it and play it. Like, how would you sing that? You wouldn't sing it. You know, you. That's not how you sing. Everything happens to me. So he would, he would kind of push me to to look for my. And that's also incidentally a great way to sort of discover your own voice and your own way of of presenting a, a song. Even though as bass players, we're not often called on to do that. Um except when we take a solo. So I think that what that did was it helped me become a more lyrical soloist, which incidentally is one of Al's big things. He's always like, I like it when you play lyrically. Lyrical. He likes storytelling. And so I'll get back to Al just for a second. Al would, I realized I skipped one thing. What he would do when when I was playing with him is he would say, like if, if I was having a good moment or something, he would often not play behind the bass solo. He'd just sit there and listen. And he'd sometimes sing along. Like if he found the the melodic thread that where I was going, he'd start going da 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 da, and he'd just like kind of catch because his ears are legendarily amazing, and his and his recall and his just he's got this intuition, like this ability to what they call hear around the corner. He can hear what's you know he could have heard that train before it came. He would kind of understand that it was coming and be ready for it, and that's something that's really special about his just the way he hears. So that's that's one thing that he did for me. So now back to Kevin Hayes. So that was Al. Back to Kevin Hayes. Kevin, when he was playing with with Al, understood that Al wanted a particular. He was Al's really into '60s blue note recordings. He considers himself a bebop drummer. You know, hard bop drummer. All the like in the in the lineage of like Art Blakey and Max Roach and and uh, Art Taylor and Philly Joe. Those are his big heroes. But really, he's a lot more than that. I mean, he he did a lot of like. I think he could have been in like more involved in ECM, the sound of ECM records. Like he played with Richie Byrack quite 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 a bit, and he definitely something about his sound. I think it really really works in that context as well. But he he doesn't feel that. I don't know why. He's just he's not buying into that. I've tried to try and get him to you know consider that, but um, but yeah. So Kevin going into going into Al's band, realize that that's what Al needed, and, and Kevin can do that for days. Now, now, the problem became, I think, for Kevin artistically was that 
he felt that was sort of boxing him into a to a stylistic paradigm that he'd been he'd been sort of he'd been put in this little box like here's a guy that you know that that does that hard bop thing he's he's got Horace Silver and he's got he's got some Chick Corea and he's got some Herbie and he's really and, and Kevin really understands this music he's just been just so good at at picking up on it so in a way like one one time he came to me in my hotel room he said man I I don't think I can do this anymore. It's I, I gotta I gotta get myself out of this. I'm in a box, and I gotta I gotta kill. He said I have to kill the Buddha. I have to I have to I have to do away with this. And he even said that to Herbie. He went up to Herbie and he said I have to I have to not ever listen to you ever again. I I'm sorry. I, I love you, but I I can't I can't be around you. You're no good for me. And 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 not not that Herbie's not the greatest. I mean Herbie's amazing, but but so that was sort of the that was when Kevin made the decision to move on and um, that allowed space for Adam to come in so right but that was a that was a thing also one of my other uh, favorite albums is um, Seventh Sense uh, oh yeah Kevin Hayes uh, this time with another drummer uh, Brian Blade right and you also have some uh, some history with him and I'm, I'm curious of how uh, how it feels to work with him and what you've learned from him mm. So another long chapter. Uh, I'll, I'll give you the, the bullet points. I mean, he, as you guys know, I mean, Brian is the, the probably the top guy. Brian and Bill Stewart are the top drummers, I would say, that uh, of my generation. You know, they've they've really defined. Like I, I think of, I think of, uh, say Brian is more of a Fred Astaire type, and uh, and Bill is more like Barishnikov or something. Maybe I'm not sure if that metaphor is going to fly, but something along the lines of, of of Bill being so highly skilled technically and so precise, and 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 Brian being such a beautiful artist, just such a beautiful uh, force, and, and so working with him, I mean, I've yeah, I've known him also since the early '90s, and um, we've had periods where we didn't play together for a long time, but. I can tell you that about maybe five years ago now, he called me and I was driving somewhere and I pulled the, I pulled over. I I didn't want to be like I'll call him back. I mean I know when he calls me, it's something that I want to talk to him about, or it's or somebody's you know died or something. Something very important is going to transpire. So he called and and asked me if he, we had this band that used to play at Smalls on Thursday nights, and he said. He said, you wanted to get that band back together and make a recording? And I was like, do you just say when, man, I'm there, you know? I mean, it's, we actually, the last time I played here was with him. I was just thinking about it. We played, that was 2005, I wow. think. Yeah. Anyway. That's the year I came to Cologne, actually. Is that so? Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, do you have some remem remembrances from, from that record, Seventh Sense? Because also, I think John Schofield produced that record, right? Yeah, John Schofield uh, produced it. He was he was there. He no, nobody really said much to us. Bob Belden was also there. Um, that was another moment too, because I'd been playing jam sessions with Kevin at his house on Carroll Street in Brooklyn, and it was often like Seamus Blake or Josh Redman or like the you know heavy cats, because Kevin played in Josh's band I think before Brad was in the band, and. Um, so, yeah, we would, you know, Kevin was writing all this music, and I kind of had a feeling that he had a record date 
planned, but I wasn't sure. I mean, he was doing little records for like Criss Cross and Steeplechase and stuff like that in this Japanese label called Jazz City. Um, but uh, yeah, I was at, at home one night after one of those sessions and the phone rang and it was Kevin's. Back when people would call and not text, there was no email. This was a long time ago. Um, and he said, yeah, I just wondered if you felt like making this record for me with Blue, on Blue Note Records. And I was like, whoa. I dropped the phone. I fell on the floor, actually. And I tried to be cool about it. And I was like, yeah, oh, I just dropped the phone. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I can make that. I think I, no. And it was, you know, we'd been playing this music, and it just came together very organically. Um, Brian was making a lot of the sessions. And even Steve Nelson would come in from, like, he lived in, like, New Brunswick. So he'd drive like an hour and a half just to come and play for three hours and then go home no for no pay just for some snacks yeah be lucky to have some snacks actually <laughs> but um yeah and kevin wrote all the music uh, or arranged it and we did a few gigs and we you know went into the studio we had two days in the studio and i remember still you know how it felt to like turn on the radio in my car on jazz 88 and, and have them play that record yeah, and I was very proud of it. I mean, I think I think it it, it came out came it's, out okay. It's I, an incredible record. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah, listen to it da- this morning. I think Downbeat only gave it three and a half stars. Well, what do they know? That's true. Okay, one last uh, one last topic, and I'm really interested in um, your ears actually, because you have, uh, and I notice it, you know, uh, on stage as well, of course. Uh, that you have incredible ears and are able to follow a pianist or, or you know, your ideas very, very easily and very, very quickly. And I wondered what you, um, what you did to, to improve that. I'll say another name then. Uh, Mark Copeland really helped me with that because he's a pianist. He actually lives in Bonn now. He also escaped the USA and uh, is living in Bonn. And he's a, a pianist with whom I... I worked also around the time I was just getting out of college. And he's, a, he's the first guy I've ever played with that I was like, man, I can't hear what he's doing. What, what are those chords? You know, he's, he's playing these what we call clusters, which means you don't know what it really is. It's just a, very, a lot of notes very close together. And uh, so I actually took a lesson with him. And he suggested, he said, well, if you want to know what I'm doing, you just got to like transcribe a piano solo. So I did. I found a Herbie solo that I thought was really great on a blues. Which one? Uh, it's it's from the live at the Steve Allen show. It was like Wayne's first gig. It was a right. TV show. No blues. And I had, yeah, I had no blues. And I had it on cassette tape. And I remember thinking like, wow. And like, and first of all, I was just really drawn to the way the band was playing. They were really on fire. It was Wayne, Wayne Shorter's first appearance with that band, I think. Yeah. In 1964. And, uh, and Herbie... Like Al would say, Herbie kind of burned on everyone. Herbie kind of really, he really played a great solo on, on that tune. So I figured, I better figure this out. So I, I figured out the right hand. I wrote it out. I took it to Mark, and he's like, what about the comping? What about the left hand? That's what you're trying to hear, right? And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I went home, and I sat there for, for about four days listening to the first chord, which was an F7 chord, and he voiced it. E flat G A D and I was like 
oh, when I finally figured that out, that opened up the whole, I was like, oh, I understand right. rootless voicings now. Because then I, because then you get that one, then you get the next one, which is D, G, A flat, C. And you know, and you just like, you figure out these, these, and then, oh, wow, that's a diminished chord with a major seventh. So you start to sort of pick apart the harmony bit by bit. And, and, and that, that activity was, I mean, I used to do ear training a lot, you know, mm. too, in those days. I used to, in fact, I ended up teaching ear training, and but I used to do ear training with Ben Monder. Oh, it's a good uh, teacher, I suppose. <laughs> he, he was good. Well, I mean, it was like we were like head to head, man. I mean, mm. it was really like we'd play like eight notes for each other, and like, what are they? Write them down. Oh, great. Tell me what this is. He can always play much weirder stuff than I could, mm. but but uh, but I could hear it. You know, I could hear what he was what he was. Playing. Anyway, I mean, it was yeah. Ear training was important to me. I'm an ear player more than a, a visual player. Mm. Everyone's a little different, but. But I, I learned uh, I learned by listening and especially jazz, but even classical music. My classical teacher, when I was a when I was younger, would would sometimes you know sing parts to me or or play them for me, and hmm. not so much to show me visually, but he but if I could hear it, I could I could get it get it happening. But I'm glad you appreciate that. I, yeah, that's just kind of all I got. I got my hearing, got my you know, my <laughs> you rhythm, sense stuff. of rhythm. You have some stuff. Lyricism. <laughs> Okay, uh, Doug, I think we need to wrap it up now. Okay. And I want to thank you for talking to me and uh, for being here today. It's a great pleasure. That's a great honor for me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you.